Welcome, welcome, welcome to today's episode of the Law of Self-Defense without a Rumble stream today. Sorry about that, folks, but Rumble is just not cooperating today. Uh, not sure what's happening. It's something on their end, but today we are streaming on YouTube, on Twitter, at Law Self-Defense, and of course, for our Law Self-Defense members on the member dashboard. Glad to see everybody filling in. Uh, and of course, and of course, let me turn off all these annoying notifications on my computer. And of course, I'm sure by now, all of you know or should know for sure, I am attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Thank you. Thank you very much. And today we are here to talk about retired basketball star Sean Kemp. Now, I have to confess, I haven't watched uh basketball since the michael jordan chicago bulls era <laughs> perfect perfect timing perfect timing start the show and the train comes through uh so i haven't watched basketball since the michael jordan era that that was a fun time to watch basketball uh but haven't seen any for 20 plus years so i don't really know who sean kemp is but Apparently, he was a very good basketball player, six-time All-Star, now retired, and uh, apparently a cannabis entrepreneur in the state of Washington. And uh, he returned to his car to discover that his car had been broken into and his iPhone had been stolen. So Sean Kemp then used the, uh, the find function, the locate function available on iPhones, uh, to track down his phone in the hands one would think, of the thieves who stole the phone in the first place. And things escalated into an exchange of gunfire. Uh, the other parties fled the scene. Sean Kemp uh, was still on scene when police arrived, and they promptly arrested him for getting into a gunfight. Um, he was taken into custody, but he was released within 24 hours um, because he claims that uh, he only fired his shots in self-defense against the other party. And the prosecutor's not yet prepared, at least, to uh, continue um, pursuing charges. They are continuing to investigate the case, so charges might ultimately result or not. Uh, but today, what we'll be doing is looking at the actual law that applies to defensive property in this kind of circumstance. Um, the legal jeopardy that Sean Kemp uh, places himself in by seeking to retrieve his iPhone uh, with a gun the scope of the legal privilege to recover your property uh, when it's been taken in this kind of manner. And of course, the, the practical implications of, uh, of getting into a gunfight over an iPhone, especially if you got the money to buy another one, which I assume Sean Kemp does. Uh, I don't know, but basketball players are, are well played. Uh, many don't hold on to their money. I'm not sure what the situation is with Sean Kemp, but in any case, uh, there's a limited number of things I'm personally prepared to die over, and my iPhone's not one of them. Uh, different people might feel differently, but we'll discuss those political implications as well. Um, and we'll take, as part of all this legal discussion, we'll look at the relevant Washington state uh, statutes on defensive property, jury instructions on defensive property, 
And we'll take a look at a Washington Court of Appeals decision from just a few years ago, five or so years ago, um, addressing essentially an identical fact pattern to this one, where someone has a, uh, an iPhone stolen out of their car, uh, tracks down the thief, uh, uses force against the thief, gets charged with assault, felony assault, um, and tries to raise a defense of property legal defense at trial to that felony assault charge. And the trial judge uh, won't even instruct the jury on defense of property. And the appellate court affirmed that conviction. And that seems to me uh, a pretty close parallel to what Sean Kemp is looking at here. Uh, that doesn't mean he doesn't have a path uh, to not having committed a crime here if it was genuine self-defense and not defense of property. Uh, but that's, you know, small changes in facts produce big changes in legal outcomes in these use of force cases. So that's kind of the razor's edge that Sean Kemp finds himself on in this moment. Uh, and we'll start with a couple of news reports on this event, which is the only source we have so far for, for facts on this case. Before we jump into that, I do, of course, uh, have an obligation to mention the sponsor of today's content, which is none other than Where Are You? Where are you? Where's my little... Oh, come now. Did I not leave it open? Okay. Boy, my sponsor must be really disappointed in me for not really nailing this out of the park the moment they came up. But our sponsor today is, of course, none other than Law of Self-Defense, specifically our upcoming Law of Self-Defense advanced class, where in a single day, you learn how to make yourself hard to convict, make yourself an unattractive target for prosecution if you're ever compelled to use force in defense of yourself, your family, or your property. Sean Kemp could have benefited from taking this course. This Law Self-Defense Advanced class is scheduled for Saturday, April 15th. It's a full-day course taught live by me, streamed to you at your computer, plenty of opportunity for Q&A. You get all your questions answered. And it's the only advanced class that we have scheduled for all of 2023. Do you know when you're going to be attacked? The date and time? Of course not. It's not up to you. That's up to the aggressor. Can you afford to wait another year to learn how to be hard to convict in case you're attacked? I doubt it. Best of all, if you sign up for this class, April 15th, class this month during the month of march you get 10 percent off your registration you can also sign up for somebody else if you want if you have a loved one you think could benefit from this course of instruction uh if you go to this url we have on the screen law of self-defense.com slash advanced uh there's a, a lengthier video for me explaining what's covered in the course the hundred plus use of force law questions that we answer uh, over the course of the day to which you probably either don't know the answers or the answers you think you know are wrong in my experience. Uh, but you can learn more about the course and register at lawofselfdefense.com slash advanced. And I also want to mention again, uh, my local Brazilian jiu-jitsu dojo, where I uh, study uh, BJJ under the Gracie University uh, School of Instruction, is hosting a free self-defense seminar on April 8th, the Saturday uh, right before uh, my advanced class, the Saturday preceding my advanced class. Uh, this is a great school, uh, lots of mat space. The, the instructor, Professor Ray, is uh, just wonderful, especially with new students. Uh, if you're not studying BJJ, folks, I, I personally think you're not studying the 
most effective and most legally sound martial art currently available. And it's fun. And you can do it for two hours for free, get the toe in the water, get your initial exposure. I urge you to take advantage of this opportunity. Now, this is in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So uh, it's not applicable to most of you, but if you are anywhere within a couple hours drive of Colorado Springs, uh, which is a good chunk of the state of Colorado, I would urge you to take advantage of this opportunity for this free Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Self-Defense Seminar, Saturday, April 8th, 2 to 4 p.m. You can learn more about this at the uh, the link or the email on the screen here, or just pick up your phone right now and scan that QR code. The link is GJJ, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu101.com, and the email is contact at GJJ hyphen CS for Colorado Springs.com. Do it, folks. You'll never regret it. Even if all you do is a seminar and decide it's not for you, you still won't regret having done the free seminar. I promise you that. Uh, and when you get there, tell Professor Ray that I sent you. Uh, maybe I'll be there myself. I might go myself if I can uh, get the time away from uh, family on Saturday. But uh, regardless, I can assure you, you will have a great time. I've had a great time every single class I've gone to there. All right. So with that out of the way, let's take a look at some of these news articles about this event. And I, I copy and paste them into a Word document, folks, so we don't have to see all the ads. So here's an article from the Seattle Times. Of course, this happened in uh, Tacoma, Washington, outside the Tacoma Mall. The confrontation, the shootout happened. Um, Ex-Sonic star Sean Kemp released after Washington shooting arrest. What do they have to say here? Uh, Pierce County prosecutors decided Thursday, this would be just this past Thursday, not to charge former Seattle Sonics star Sean Kemp pending further investigation by Tacoma police into a shooting reported Wednesday near the Tacoma Mall. So by law in Washington, they have to give you a formal charge within 72 hours of your arrest or they have to kick you loose. And I guess they didn't feel they had enough to settle on a charge, if any, that they'll bring against Sean Kemp. So they're still investigating, uh, but they released him pending a charge. Uh, prudently, uh, Sean Kemp has lawyered up smart of him to do. So a, a lot of what we'll see here in these news reports is actually communication from his lawyers, which is as it should be, folks. You should never be talking to the media if you're involved in a use of force event. That's part of what you have lawyers for. Your lawyers do the talking, uh, preferably in writing, which at least one of his attorneys did in communicating with the media. So you have uh, an ironclad defense against being uh, misinterpreted or misquoted by the media, which happens all the damn time, I can tell you from personal experience. If you ever do have to actually talk to the media for any purpose, set aside use of force events for, for any other purpose, uh, please record it. Let them know you're recording it in case it's a two-party state where, where everyone involved needs to give permission to be recorded uh, so that you're not inadvertently breaking the law. But uh, if they will not give you permission to record on your end, why the heck are you talking to him? So uh, to continue, Pierce County prosecutors, prosecutors, sorry, folks, let me take a sip here. Nothing but the finest Pellegrino. Uh, Pierce County prosecutors decided Thursday not to charge former Seattle Sonics star Sean Kemp pending further investigation by Tacoma police into a shooting reported Wednesday near the Tacoma Mall. Kemp's attorney said Thursday that he fired, so both parties fired shots, 
that Kemp fired in self-defense. No injuries were reported. So another gunfight where no one got hit. Does that mean the bullets missed, folks? Bullets don't miss. Bullets keep going until they hit something. They may not hit the thing you wanted to hit or the person you wanted to hit, but they hit something, even if it's the ground, ultimately. No injuries were reported. So those bullets didn't strike anybody, apparently, but they struck stuff. They were flying around in that space. Uh, Continuing, the six-time All-Star who was booked into the Pierce County Jail just before 6 p.m. Wednesday on an investigation of drive-by shooting, which is probably how the the event was called in by witnesses to 911, uh, was released at 1 p.m. Thursday. Jail records show under Washington law, people booked into jail must be released if prosecutors do not file charges within 72 hours, not counting weekends or holidays. Prosecutors are... Oh, this is rich. This is true, of course, but it's laughable because... (laughs) <laughs> in practical application, it's completely ignored. Uh, prosecutors are ethically bound not to file charges unless they believe they have evidence to prove a charge to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. That is nonsense. That happens all the time. It's true they're not supposed to do it, but they do it. Uh, continuing, Tacoma police responded to a report of gunfire in a parking lot on South Tacoma Street, according to a police tweet, near the Tacoma Mall just before 2 p.m. Wednesday. Officers determined there had been an altercation between people in two vehicles. One of the drivers fired several rounds at people in the other vehicle, which left the scene. Well, that makes it sound like it was not two-way gunfire. Of course, it doesn't have to be. You don't have to wait for the other guy to actually fire at you uh, before you can use a gun in self-defense. You need to be facing, as usual, uh, an imminent threat of deadly force harm, unlawful deadly force harm against you. Uh, Someone presenting a gun, even before they fire it, is arguably presenting as an imminent deadly force threat. So you can shoot first. Han shot first, right? Perfectly lawful to do that under the appropriate circumstances. Uh, Becomes more of a subjective call than, however, whether or not a deadly force threat was, in fact, being presented by the people in the other vehicle. Who says it was? Sean Kemp? That's the only source. Again, I wouldn't be waiting until I was shot at either. Um, but the uh, if sh- uh, shots have been fired in both directions and that was documented, that would obviously be helpful to Sean Kemp's narrative of self-defense. Uh, continuing, officers found and arrested a 53-year-old man who police said fired the shots and they recovered a firearm. A Pierce County Sheriff spokesman later confirmed that the man arrested was Sean Kemp, Kemp's personal attorney. So I guess he's got money. You need money to have a personal attorney. Um, Scott Boatman said in a statement on Twitter Thursday that Kemp's vehicle had been broken into late Tuesday and he tracked a stolen iPhone to an occupied vehicle in the parking lot where the gunfight ensued. When Mr. Kemp approached the vehicle in an attempt to retrieve a stolen property, individuals inside the vehicle shot at Mr. Kemp who then returned fire in self-defense. Of course, this is Kemp's lawyer. So obviously we take all this with a tremendous grain of salt. Um, Continuing, there was not a drive-by shooting as previously reported, and Mr. Kemp's actions were reasonable and legally justified. And maybe they were. Kemp has since retained Seattle criminal defense attorneys Tim Leary and Aaron Kiviet to represent him. The attorneys met with him Thursday before learning prosecutors would not file charges immediately. Uh, Kiviet, The lawyer said, Mr. Kemp is a pillar of the community and he's not going anywhere. So he's not a flight risk. 
he was the one who stuck around and spoke with police while the other individuals fled, said attorney Leary. Well, that's very positive for Kemp, uh, who added he's grateful prosecutors are taking the time to consider all the facts of the case, as well they should. Uh, Kemp, who has no significant criminal history, also a very favorable thing for Kemp, uh, was a major part of the Sonics' successful run in the 1990s. I wouldn't know anything about that. Uh, then there's stuff about uh, uh, Kemp's uh, basketball career. In 2020, Kemp opened a cannabis dispensary in Seattle, Belltown, Sean Kemp's Cannabis. He opened a second shop last month in Soto. So he's a cannabis entrepreneur. Certainly nothing illegal about that. Now, another article here. Uh, this is from uh, USA Carry. Uh, let's see. I'm doing this wrong. Let me try this again. All right. You can find USA Carry at usacarry.com. So they have an article here a few days after the one I just looked at. Uh, Ex-NBA star Sean Kemp fires in self-defense while retrieving stolen iPhone. Uh, former Seattle Supersonics player Sean Kemp was booked into Pierce County Jail on an investigation of a drive-by shooting but released after 24 hours due to prosecutors deciding not to fire charges yet. Kemp's personal attorneys claim he fired in self-defense. Tacoma police responded to a report of gunfire in a parking lot near the Tacoma Mall. They determined an altercation occurred between people in two vehicles. One of the drivers fired several rounds. Much of this, of course, we just saw in the Seattle Times article. Uh, let's see. I won't repeat the stuff we already covered. Uh, from the information available, it appears that Mr. Kemp may have been a victim of a crime himself, with his vehicle being broken into and his iPhone stolen. It's understandable that he would want to retrieve his property, but it's important to remember that attempting to do so can be dangerous. It uh, can also be unlawful, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, you never know what kind of situation you might be walking into, and it's always better to call the police and let them handle it. Is it worth getting shot over an iPhone? It's a good question. Some people would say yes. Uh, many people would say yes. That they, you know, they, they spent their life, right? Their energy, their time securing the resources needed to purchase an iPhone. It's not just a physical object and uh, it's a, a life sacrifice they made and uh, they feel privileged to uh, use force, even deadly force in defense of their property. Um, uh, I don't have any moral objection to that position, but it's not the position of the law really anywhere. Even in Texas, as we'll see, where Texas is the one state that has some provision for the use of deadly force in defense of property, but it would almost certainly not be applicable uh, to the facts of, of this case. So even if Sean Kemp had done this in Texas, he wouldn't really have a defensive property argument, as we'll see. I'll show you the Texas law when we get there. Uh, the article continues, that being said, if Kemp truly acted in self-defense, then he was well within his rights to do so. The right to self-defense is a fundamental one. And it's important that individuals are able to protect themselves in situations where their life is threatened. Uh, overall, this incident serves as a reminder that retrieving stolen property can be dangerous. It's always better to err on the side of caution and let the authorities handle it. At the same time, as someone is truly acting in self-defense, then they have the right to protect themselves. It's up to the investigation to determine which was the case in this particular situation. Right. So we, we're dealing with 
really two possible uh, scenarios here. Uh, in one scenario, this is really a defensive property scenario. So Sean Kemp tracked down his stolen iPhone, threatened to use force to recover the iPhone. So threatened to use force to recover property. That would be unlawful in Washington state and in Texas. So if that's what happened, if that's what the facts support, imagine it was caught on camera as often happens these days. Uh, imagine he just walked up to that car with the people inside it who had a stolen cell phone, or he believed they had a stolen cell phone. Um, and he just points a gun at their head and says, give me my cell phone back. If that's what happened, that's not lawful. Can't do that. Can't even do that in Texas. As we'll see, I'll show you the actual law. On the other hand, I expect what Sean Kemp or his lawyers are going to argue is that he never threatened any force to recover his property. He simply tracked down the phone, approached the car with the thieves inside and said, hey, buddy, I'd really appreciate it if you gave me my iPhone back. And they threatened him with gunfire, at which point he drew his own weapon and shot at them. That's not a defense of property legal argument anymore. That's, that's a straight up defense of persons, self-defense argument. And certainly he would have the privilege to defend himself against their unlawful initial aggression of deadly force against him by going to their guns in response to his polite request uh, to give his iPhone back. Does anybody believe that's what happened? I mean, maybe that's what happened. Or did Sean Kemp go there fully prepared to retrieve his iPhone at the point of a gun? Certainly, if the prosecutors wanted to be as aggressive as they were against George Zimmerman or Kyle Rittenhouse or Alex Murda, that's the argument they would be making. That this was never a peaceful attempt to recover stolen property. This is a man who went to recover his property with a gun. was prepared to kill, to threaten, use deadly force if necessary to get his iPhone back. Are, do the facts exist to support that kind of narrative for the prosecution? Sometimes they don't even need facts, right? We see that too. Uh, but we don't know yet. That's why the investigating uh, investigation is continuing. I expect that the prosecution is hoping to be able to develop those kinds of uh, damaging facts for, for Sean Kemp uh, in order to be able to pursue that kind of legal argument, bring charges against him. We don't know, of course. I have no idea. I wasn't there. We don't have a good set of facts. Uh, we're mostly only hearing from uh, his lawyers. So obviously take that with a grain of salt. But those are the legal questions. Was this a defensive property scenario in which Sean Kemp was threatening the use of force to recover his property? Or was it genuinely a self-defense scenario? Um, if the facts support self-defense, uh, the bad guys with the gun went to their, uh, with the phone, went to their guns first presented as initial unlawful deadly force aggressors, then arguably Sean Kemp going to his gun was just lawful self-defense and he's good to go. Still took a hell of a lot of risk to recover an iPhone. But if it was a defensive property scenario, if that's what the facts support, then Sean Kemp is a real problem because that can't be justified on the facts of this case. We may wish it could be, but that's not the world we live in. That's not the world Washington is, Washington State that's not the world Texas is. And Texas has the most aggressive defensive property laws in any American jurisdiction. 
So let's take a look now at some of these some of these Washington laws. Actually, before I do that, uh, let me remind everybody. First of all, let's see what's happening on YouTube. Have you people hit the thumb? You have not. You have not hit the thumbs up button. Folks, come on. There's uh, almost 300 of you watching, only 80 likes. You can do better. We need at least 50% likes, or what's what's the purpose of being here? You got to double that number. Those are rookie numbers. 83 likes out of 300 people. Come on. You can do better than that. Um, also, you may as well subscribe. You need to subscribe to uh, be able to comment. And, uh, of course, we are trying to get, we're at 48.1 thousand subscribers on YouTube. I'd love to hit 50,000. So if you could subscribe, that would be greatly appreciated. And if you could leave a comment in the chat, even if it's just your city and state, uh, to kind of fool the algorithm into whatever the algorithm does, spreading our content more broadly, uh, that would also be uh, much appreciated. If you'd like to ask questions and get them answered, there's today there's two ways to do this because we don't have a working Rumble stream. Thanks, Rumble. Work on your coding, man. Um, there's two ways to ask questions today. One is as a YouTube Super Chat. needs to be a $5 minimum YouTube Super Chat in order to get answered, or much more cost-effectively, instead of paying $5 a question on YouTube, uh, become a Law Self-Defense member for less than 10 bucks a month, about 30 cents a day, and get all your questions answered. Uh, watching the stream in the Law Self-Defense member dashboard, uh, there's a chat there. Put your question in the chat. I just ask you preface it, preface it with the word question in all caps so it's easy for me to see. And for 30 cents a day, you get every question you ask answered instead of five bucks a question. And you can become a Law of Self-Defense member right now, like that, at lawofselfdefense.com slash join. Instantly become a member, less than 10 bucks a day. Uh, get uh, immediate instructions for how to access the member dashboard and watch this show right now, streaming on the member dashboard. Access the chat so you can ask your questions there. Uh, I doubt we have any questions yet, but let me take a quick look. Let me take a quick look before we dive into the actual law. Uh, and we are going to look at a uh, appellate court decision in today's show in the wild, in the raw, an actual piece of case law. Um, we don't do that too often anymore. Maybe I'll start doing more of that again if people like it. But uh, I, I did put a link to the actual decision in the... Uh, in the description for today's video. So for those of you who'd like to access it and read the uh, the full decision at your leisure, let's see. Nothing in the nothing in the super chats yet, and the members. Let's see. Uh, so we do have a question from Oscar already. Um, he references Texas Penal Code 9.42. That's the Texas statute that has provisions that allow for the use of deadly force in defense of mere personal property. Texas is the only state that allows for the use of deadly force in defense of mere personal property. That's distinguished from highly defensible property like a home or an occupied business or an occupied vehicle. We're talking things like an iPhone here. Um, uh, other states don't have that. Texas is the only state that has any provision for the use of deadly force in defense of property. But other states do have um, provisions for deadly force to prevent felonies, 
Well, sometimes the theft of a piece of property could be a felony. Usually it depends on the value of the property being taken. Uh, would those other states then allow you to use deadly force to prevent that felony theft of personal property? The answer is no. Uh, what every one of those states has done, whether it's in the statutory language or the uh, or it's in case law, uh, is the courts have said, no, when we say felony, we mean a forcible felony. We mean there's a threat to persons. If it's simply a threat to property, it's a defensive property, personal property case, there, there's no deadly force allowance in that circumstance. Even if technically the theft of the property would qualify as a felony because of the value of the property or, or whatever. Uh, there needs to be a threat to persons in those other 49 states. Texas is the one state that doesn't require a threat to persons. Uh, and if you jump through all the hoops, and, and we'll see some of those hoops, um, under Texas Penal Code 9.42, you might you might be privileged to use deadly force in, in defense property. I see it happening in Texas. Uh, people shot dead simply over a threat to property. Um, and the, the authorities in Texas say, well, if you didn't want to get killed, you shouldn't have stolen that guy's property. But there are a lot of hoops that have to be jumped through. And, and by the way, these facts, these Sean Kemp facts, wouldn't satisfy those hoops, even in Texas. All right, so let's take a look at, uh, at the actual Washington state law on uh, defensive property, use of deadly force. Um, frankly, the, these statues are old. They're, they're, they're written in a very clunky um, way. Uh, that makes them a, a little bit difficult to understand what the legislature was really trying to intend. But, it, you know, statutes by themselves uh, don't mean what they appear to mean, whether they're written clearly or written in an unclear fashion. Uh, statutes don't have any effect in the real world by themselves. Statutes uh, only have an effect in the real world once they're interpreted and applied by courts to real people in real cases. And that's why we'll be looking at a, uh, an appellate court decision in today's show as well. So let me take a look here at the, um, first we'll look at Washington's general use of force statute. So the way most states structure this is they have a set of conditions that must be met before any degree of force is lawful against another person. And then they'll add additional conditions that have to be met before deadly force can be used. And generally, the deadly force conditions also apply to, you know, they incorporate the non-deadly force. So first, you have to meet the first threshold. Is any amount of force allowed at all, even non-deadly force? Is anything allowed? And then if you've satisfied those conditions, then you ask, well, now, now that we've satisfied that, is deadly force allowed? Make sense? So this is also how Washington uh, State structures things, again, in, in a rather clunky way, um, but that's just how they decide to do it. So here's the uh, relevant uh, statute. I'll, I'll, I'll zoom it in, but as long as we have it up there, you'll see on the, uh, on the right side of the page, there's a mention of our book, The Law of Self-Defense Principles, soft cover. We make this book available to you for free. Folks, the link is right there, lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. I encourage you to check out the book on Amazon. It's got over 1,200 re reviews, 4.8 stars. There's always 0.2 of people who are jerks. Um, let's round that up to five star. Very well rated, bestseller in Amazon's criminal law segment. But don't buy the book on Amazon. They'll charge you for the book and the shipping and handling. We'll give you the book for free. We only ask that you cover the cost of shipping the book to you. 
So there is shipping and handling, but the book itself, we eat the cost. You can get this book for free, but for the shipping and handling at lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. Very easy read. Most people read this. The biggest compliment we get on this book is that it's easy to read for a non-lawyer audience, for, for lay people. Uh, most people read it in an afternoon, two, three hours, and they've, they've got the whole book down. Or if you'd like the uh, the very handsome hardcover version of the book, this one's not free. They're, they're, these are too expensive to print up, to just give away, but they make wonderful gifts. They look great on a bookshelf. You can get the hardcover version of that same book, Law of Self-Defense Principles, at lawofselfdefense.com slash get hard. And by the way, guess who wrote the foreword? Masada Yub was kind enough to write the foreword to this book. Always much appreciated. All right. With that out of the way, that's what I wanted to do uh, this. I want to zoom this in so it's a little easier to read. All right. So uh, statute 9A, 16, 020, use of force when lawful. So these are the conditions that are required for even merely non-deadly force. Uh, and they have a whole bunch of different paragraphs here that deal with different situations. Some of them are for police. Uh, some of them are if someone's about to be injured. Uh, some of them is when someone's mentally ill. Uh, but the relevant portion for us would be, um, uh, here's an arrest. Let's see here. So when can you use force? Uh, whenever used by someone about to be injured or by another lawfully aiding him, so you're about to be injured or someone else sees you're about to be injured and they're acting on your behalf to defend you. So that's defensive persons, right? In preventing or attempting to prevent an offense against his or her person, so that would be an assault or battery, or a malicious trespass or other malicious interference with real property or personal property. So you can use force to defend against malicious interference with personal property under Washington law. That would be like to prevent someone from stealing your iPhone, right? The malicious interference being the theft, the personal property being the iPhone. But wait, there's more because right away we run into a difficult complication for Sean Kemp. You can use force to prevent malicious interference with personal property that's lawfully in your possession. That means you're in possession of the iPhone and someone is trying to take it from you. That excludes using force to recover previously stolen property. And in this case, Sean Kemp's iPhone was stolen the previous day from his confrontation with the thieves. So right away, the statutory language suggests he wouldn't have any privilege to use any force to recover his iPhone under these circumstances. And it also says, in case the force is not more than necessary, what this will be interpreted by the courts to mean is that you're using only non-deadly force, not deadly force. In the eyes of 49 out of 50 states, the life of even a thief is still a life that's worth more than an iPhone. So no non-deadly force. And the non-deadly force condition is just reinforced when we look at the next relevant statute here, which deals with when are you allowed to kill? So we just looked at when are you allowed to use any force, even just non-deadly force at all, and you can use it to prevent malicious interference with property in your possession. 
But when are you allowed to kill? Because that previous statute didn't say you could kill. We find that here when we look at homicide when justifiable. Very short statute. Homicide is justifiable when committed in the lawful defense of the slayer, the defender, or, and then they list a lot of family relationships, personal relationships, or in defense of his or her husband, wife, parent, child, brother, or sister. These enumerated lists are always interesting because they don't include like aunt, uncle, but you can, the same principles that would apply to defense of self apply generally to defense of others. Uh, that's beyond the scope of today's show, but just making that clear. When you see this kind of enumerated list of people, you know this is a very old statute. This is how they used to do it. And by the way, why did they used to do it this way? Why didn't they just say, because more modern statutes will, would say in defense of yourself or others, and then list all the conditions that have to be met for the homicide to be justifiable. Essentially, the same conditions apply to defense of others as apply to defense of yourself. When you look at the really old statutes like this one, often they don't just have a generic and others. They list these very specific relationships. New Hampshire statute includes uh, uh, servants, for example. Um, why? Why not just the general others, the whole world? Uh, why these special relationships, enumerated relationships in particular? Because the law was recognizing that defense of others is a different dynamic when you're defending people you have a personal relationship with than if you're defending a total stranger. Often, if you turn a corner, you see a fight in progress, and you decide to come to someone's defense of a total stranger, you really have no idea what's going on in that fight. You don't know who started that fight. You don't know either of the people involved. You don't know who might have been the aggressor. So there's a lot of ambiguity there. Whereas if you see your spouse or your child or your sibling in a fight, well, you know something about them. You know whether it's likely they started that fight. Also, of course, you have a, a human emotional connection with those people. So the law used to treat those relationships in a special way compared to the public in general. We don't really do that anymore. But you still find the language in old statutes. Uh, so in uh, homicide is justifiable when committed in defense of the defender or these special relationships in his presence or company, when there is reasonable ground to apprehend a design on the part of the person killed to commit a felony or to do some great personal injury to the slayer, uh, and there's an imminent danger of such design being accomplished. So if we wanted to take the time to parse that out, we would find uh, the five elements of self-defense here, really only the four because avoidance in Washington state doesn't apply. Washington state is a stand your ground state. Um, so there is no avoidance in otherwise lawful cases of self-defense. Uh, or you can also kill in the actual resistance of an attempt to commit a felony upon the slayer in his or her presence or upon in a dwelling or other place of abode in which he or she is. Uh, was this iPhone stolen in Sean Kemp's presence? No. Was it stolen under circumstances in which during the theft he was threatened with force? No, he wasn't present. So none of this would provide Sean Kemp with a deadly force in defensive property justification. So let's take a look at the appellate court decision I wanted to share with all of you out of Washington State. Now, uh, anytime we look at an appellate court decision, it, it obviously never aligns perfectly 
with the facts of a new case that we're looking at. Uh, what we need to do, um, lawyers have a phrase for this, we call it briefing the case. It would be distilling out from um, a complicated appellate court decision the essential facts that would apply to our case. So the facts here are a little bit different uh, than in the Sean Kemp case, but I would argue generally applicable. And this is a, a six-year-old case, but uh, it's still good case law. It's not been overturned, uh, anything like that. So, and it is a mid-level appellate court case. So Washington State, you have the trial courts, you have the mid-level appellate courts, and then you have the state Supreme Court. So this is a mid-level court decision. For some reason, the uh, the state Supreme Court did agree to hear the, an, an appeal from this to review this decision, but I can't find any record of them actually doing it. Uh, there's a record of them agreeing to do it uh, a year after this decision, so five years ago, but nothing's happened since then. All right, so what do we have here? We have State v. Yellowvich, Washington Court of Appeals, 2017. Stephen Yellowvich. And from now on, folks, I'm just going to call him uh, uh, the defendant. All right, so the, the names get unnecessarily confusing. Uh, appeals his conviction. The defendant appeals his conviction for violating uh, a felony no-contact order. The conviction related to his assault of Faith DeArmond. From now on, I'm just going to call her the victim. Okay, so we have the defendant. Technically speaking, he's been convicted at trial, uh, so he's appealing. Obviously, you only appeal if you're convicted at trial. Technically, he's the appellant here. So the appellant appeals his conviction for violating a felony no contact order. Uh, the conviction related to his assault of the uh, victim, the protected party. The defendant claims that his altercation with the victim occurred when he was defending his property, attempting to recover a cell phone that he alleges the victim took from him. So we have another iPhone theft case. Uh, the defendant argues the trial court erred by refusing to give a defensive property jury instruction. Uh, in the published portion of this opinion, we hold that the evidence did not support a defensive property jury instruction because the defendant used force not to prevent his property from being taken, but to recover property after the taking had been completed and the property had been removed from his area of control. So facts of the case, the defendant and the victim had dated for several years before breaking up. A domestic violence no contact order was in place that prevented the defendant from contacting the victim. According to the defendant, on the morning of June 7th, 2015, he was at a son's house packing boxes in the garage and moving them to his car. While he was working, the defendant left several items unattended in his car, which had a broken passenger side window. One of the items was a cell phone. As the defendant was taking a box to his car, he caught a glimpse of someone walking down the street. At that time, he could not tell who the person was. When he reached his car, he noticed that his cell phone and other items were missing. The defendant walked to the middle of the street and saw the person in the street was the victim. The victim was repeatedly turning around and looking back toward the defendant. The defendant immediately believed that she had taken his cell phone. So the defendant's got a no contact order, right? So he's not supposed to go anywhere near the victim. That's part of the problem here. He, he it, The state argues that by he's, he's going to pursue her now to recover his property. The state's going to argue by pursuing her, uh, he violated the no contact order, which is a misdemeanor typically. But then when he got to her, he actually struggles with her. There's a use of force, uh, which would normally be a simple assault. Um, he doesn't cause serious injury. He doesn't use a deadly weapon. 
Um, but the combination of violating the no contact and the assault escalates this to a felony uh, conviction against which he tries to say, no, no, all, all everything I did was lawful because it was in defense of property. So the, the pursuit was not a violation of a no contact order. It was defense of property. It's justified. What would normally be a crime is justified under defense of property. Similarly, the struggle, the use of force justified in defense of property is the argument he wants to make at trial. The trial judge, as we saw, says, nope. In fact, I won't even instruct the jury on any of that. There is no defense of property jury instruction. It's that denial of the jury instruction uh, that um, gets appealed here to the appellate courts. By the way, denial of a jury instruction is the kind of thing that uh, normally doesn't even need to be preserved by appeal. Uh, uh, sorry, preserved by objection by the trial lawyer uh, in order to be preserved for appeal because it's such a fundamental right to, to have the jury instructions that are supported by the evidence. Uh, continuing, the defendant got into his car and chased after the victim. He drove to the end of the road a few blocks away, turned the corner before encountering the victim. So he had to pursue her for several blocks. This matters to the appellate court. He parked his car, got out, and demanded that she return his phone. The defendant knew at that point that he was violating the no contact order, but he believed that the action was necessary before the victim disappeared with his phone. The defendant grabbed the victim's purse strap and attempted to pull the purse from her, believing that the cell phone was in the purse. The victim resisted, holding tightly to her purse. In the struggle, the victim fell to the ground. After a bystander intervened, law, enforcement's, uh, law enforcement uh, officers arrived and arrested the defendant. The state charged the defendant with violating the no contact order. Uh, the information, that's a sworn document many states use instead of a grand jury indictment. Uh, the information alleged that the defendant had assaulted the victim, making the violation of the no contact order a felony. Uh, at trial, the witnesses testified to the facts recited above. The defendant proposed a jury instruction that included both defensive property and self-defense. The trial court ruled as a matter of law that a defensive property instruction did not apply because the defendant was not using force to prevent the cell phone from being taken. He was trying to recover the cell phone that was no longer in his possession. So that's the key distinction here, folks. If someone's taking the property from you, that's one thing. You can use defensive force, non-deadly force in Washington state to prevent the taking. Once the taking has effectively been completed and you're in the act of recovery, the law does not allow for you to use force to recover previously stolen property. And here it's a close call, right? Here, arguably, the phone was stolen just minutes before within a few blocks. In the Sean Kemp case, the phone was stolen a day before and a substantial distance from where Sean Kemp would get into his gunfight attempting to recover the phone. Uh, a jury convicted the defendant of the felony contact order violation, and he appeals his conviction. He argues that the trial court erred by refusing to give a defensive property jury instruction. And the appellate court, spoiler, says we disagree. So we already know the appellate court's going to affirm the conviction. Now they just give their reasons. Uh, let's see. Uh, the state alleges that the defendant assaulted the victim by using force against her. As a defense to assault, the defendant may raise a defense that he or she used force while defending his or her personal property. The relevant statute, which we just looked at, reads 
that the use of force is not unlawful whenever used by a party about to be injured or by another lawfully aiding him or her in preventing or attempting to prevent offense against his or her person or malicious trespass or other malicious interference with real or personal property lawfully in his possession. Emphasis added, meaning the appellate court added the italics that you see here. Obviously, they believe these are the key words in the relevant statute. Um, a criminal defendant is entitled to an instruction on his or her theory of the case if the evidence supports the instruction. This is true of self-defense as a legal defense, folks. Uh, you don't have some magical universal privilege to a self-defense jury instruction. You may think in your head what you did was self-defense, but you can still be denied a self-defense jury instruction, which is bad because if you're if you were trying to argue self-defense, you necessarily conceded that it was you who committed the use of force. Right? When you're arguing self-defense, you're not saying it wasn't me. I was at mama's house. Somebody else must have fired that shot. You're saying the opposite of that. You're saying it was me. It was me. I fired the shot. But with the legal justification of self-defense. Well, if the facts as perceived by the court, don't support a claim of self-defense because you're lacking at least a smidgen, a scintilla of evidence on each of the required elements. If any of the required elements has zero evidence to support it, well, then if a required element's not present, whatever you did was not self-defense. It's strictly a technical matter of law, and the court can simply deny you a self-defense jury instruction. So the, ju the jury never hears the word self-defense as a justification for your use of force, the use of force you already conceded to. That's an easy conviction for a prosecutor. Essentially what you've given them is a confession. So you don't have a uh, universal right to a self-defense jury instruction. Your, your self-defense jury instruction has to be supported by at least a scintilla, more than 0% of evidence. And the same is true for defensive property. Uh, regarding self-defense or defense of another, a defense is entitled to an instruction if there is some evidence to support it. Uh, the threshold is very low. Because defense of property is addressed in the same statute as self-defense and defense of another, we apply the same rule to defense of property. You need at least a scintilla of evidence, a smidgen of evidence to support the defense of property claim in order to get the defense of property jury instruction. Uh, let's see. Uh, then there's lots of there's some stuff here about how the jury is supposed to evaluate defensive property claims. I won't even go over that because this jury never got a defensive property claim. Whether the evidence is sufficient to support a defensive property instruction is a question of law that we review de novo. So the appellate court says we review it um, like a blank sheet of paper, meaning in part that there's no requirement that it was preserved at trial by an objection from the trial lawyer. This is simply a matter of law that the that the appellate court's free to review. Uh, in deciding whether such an instruction should be should have been given, we must view the evidence in light most favorable to the defendant, and the defendant can rely on any evidence produced at trial to support the defense, even if inconsistent with his or her own testimony. So again, you don't need a lot of evidence to support your desired jury instruction, self-defense or defense of property. Uh, you, you don't even need good evidence but you need more than zero evidence. All right, so use of force to recover property. Again, remember, recovering property is different than defensive property. Defensive property is when you're defending the property in the moment of it being taken. 
or in the immediate pursuit. And frankly, an argument could be made in this case that it kind of was immediate pursuit. But even this was not sufficient for this appellate court. In the case of Sean Kemp, we're talking a day later and miles away. That's definitely not immediate pursuit. Uh, here, the defendant asserted as a defense that he was justified in using force against the victim because she had taken a cell phone. However, the defendant's own testimony established that he used force in an attempt to recover the cell phone after the victim allegedly had taken it and had left the immediate area, not to prevent the victim from taking the cell phone in the first instance. The issue here is to what extent a defendant can rely on the defense of property as a defense when he or she uses force to recover property that already has been taken and is no longer in his or her possession. Uh, the relevant statute, 9A16020, paragraph 3, which we've already looked at, states the use of force is not unlawful whenever used by a party about to be injured in preventing or attempting to prevent malicious interference with personal property lawfully in his possession. Interpretation of a statute is also a question of law we review de novo. Uh, the plain language of the statute establishes that an owner of property cannot use force to defend that property after the interference with the property has been completed. The property owner can only use force, uh, can use force only if he or she is about to be injured. Once the interference with the property has been completed, the owner no longer is about to be injured. He or she has been injured by the loss of the property. Second, the property owner can only use force in preventing or attempting to prevent the interference an action taken to prevent interference must occur before the interference has been completed. Defensive property, by definition, is defensive rather than offensive. Once the interference with the property has been completed, the owner's use of force is to recover the property, not to prevent the interference. Third, the property owner, property owner can use force only if the property is lawfully in his or her possession. Once the interference with the property has been completed, another person has obtained possession the thief, uh, of the property, and the owner necessarily no longer has possession. Although the statutory language is clear, the question presented under the facts of this case is when an interference with property has been completed. Uh, let's see. Uh, they, they talk about some other Washington cases where the theft had been taken, uh, taken the day before, like in the Sean Kemp case. That's clearly already completed. Here, they struggle a little bit with the fact that the, the victim here uh, was only a few blocks away. Uh, they decide, basically, uh, the standard is that the theft was completed when the assault victim not only exercised control of the property, um, the assault victim, meaning the thief, uh, but moved it away from an area within defendant's control. After that point, the defendant was trying to apprehend the thief, not to prevent the theft. Other cases, uh, now they cite some other states, other cases have applied a general rule that a defensive property defense is not available unless a criminal act was committed in the defendant's presence. Uh, the purpose of the defensive property statute is not to recover property, but to prevent wrongful interference with it. Based on the language of our own Washington statute and relevant case law, we hold that an owner of property cannot use force, any force, to defend that property when, one, the interference with the property occurs when the defendant was not present. That's what happened here. The iPhone was stolen out of Sean Kemp's phone, uh, car when he was not present. The interference has been completed, and the property is no longer in the owner's possession. That applies to Sean Kemp. 
and the property has been removed from an area within the owner's control. Again, that applies to Sean Kemp. Uh, they apply that three-part test to the defendant here. They find all three of those conditions to have been met. Therefore, uh, the um, there is no defensive property. We hold that defensive property defense did not apply to defendant's use of force against the victim as a matter of law. Accordingly, we hold that the trial court did not err by refusing to give a defense of property jury instruction. So that's it. So would Sean Kemp, under Washington statute and case law, have a defensive property argument to be made here? No. No, because he his conduct violates all three of these conditions for defensive property under Florida law. Now, the defense he would have to make, and it sounds like his lawyers are smart enough to make it, is that he was not using force to recover his property, that he didn't threaten or use any force until he himself was personally threatened, that he was not the initial physical aggressor in the confrontation, the other party was. And if the facts support that, he's got a good justification in self-defense, but not in defense of property. Now, what about Texas? What about Texas? This Texas statute 9.42. By the way, this comes up so often in these cases that I have a shortcut link you can use to find a statute. Lawofselfdefense.com slash 942 will pull up this uh, Texas Penal Code section 9.42 for you if you'd care to read it. I'm not going to go through the whole thing here. It's it's rather lengthy and has lots of conditions, lots of hoops. Uh, But the relevant portions for our purposes here is it's deadly force to protect property. And they're talking here about tangible, movable property. So personal property, like the iPhone in this case. If Sean Kemp had committed these acts in Texas, would he have had a legal privilege to use deadly force in defense of property? Well, the first problem you meet with statute 9.42 is that the very first paragraph requires that you first meet all the conditions of section 9.41. Guess what 9.41 is? Non-deadly force in defense of property. So before you have any hope of being privileged to use deadly force in defense of personal property, you have to meet the conditions for using non-deadly force in defense of property. If you fail to meet the conditions of 9.41, you automatically don't qualify for 9.42. So we don't even really have to consider the other sections of 9.42 because Sean Kemp's use of force, if it was in defense of property, blows up right here in 9.42 paragraph one that requires he first meet the conditions of 9.41. Let's take a look at 9.41. Protection of one's own property. A person in lawful possession of tangible, movable property is justified in using force against another when and to the degree the actor reasonably believes the force is immediately necessary to prevent or terminate the other's unlawful interference with their property. But what's it require in the first few words, folks? That the defender claiming this privilege is in lawful possession of the tangible, movable property. When Sean Kemp confronts the thieves, is he in lawful possession of the property in question, the iPhone? No, they're in possession of the property. So right away, he doesn't meet this condition of 9.41. There's uh, an alternative condition, 
he could meet, or the second paragraph of 9.41, a person unlawfully dispossessed of tangible, movable property. So now it's not in the process of being taken. It's been taken. The, the, the property's been taken. You might still have a privilege to use force in defense of that property. A person unlawfully dispossessed of tangible, movable property is justified in using force against the other when and to the degree the actor reasonably believes the force is immediately necessary to recover the property if, if the actor uses the force immediately or in fresh pursuit after the dispossession. So you're standing there holding your iPhone, looking at the law self-defense Twitter feed, of course, and someone comes up, grabs it out of your hand, and they're still right there. And you use force to take it back. Well, that's using force immediately after the dispossession. That would qualify. You'd have a privilege to use that force. Or they grab your phone and they run down the street with it, and you immediately pursue them. Well, then you're in fresh pursuit. That would also be privileged. Would tracking them down the next day, miles away, qualify as either of these? Use the force immediately following the dispossession or in fresh pursuit? No. Nope. So even in Texas, the one state that has some provision for the use of deadly force in defense of personal property, the Sean Kemp facts would not satisfy the necessary conditions to trigger that privilege to use deadly force in defense of his iPhone. So where does that leave us? Uh, that leaves us pretty much where we started, as I said at the beginning. Uh, Sean Kemp's only feasible legal defense here is defense of persons. And he may have a valid and viable defense of persons argument to make. Uh, it would be great if there were surveillance footage, for example, of him walking up to the, the thieves' car with no weapon in hand and them suddenly displaying a gun or shouting threats or anything that would make them the initial physical aggressor. And only after being personally threatened, Sean Kemp went to his gun and started firing shots. That would be a straight-up self-defense justification. Um, relieve him of criminal liability for firing, firing the shots. It's not a crime. It's lawful self-defense. On the other hand, if Sean Kemp is walking up to the car with gun in hand to recover his iPhone prior to receiving any threat, from the people in the car, from the thieves. Well, that's not a defense of self scenario. That's an attempt to recover property using deadly force. And no, no amount of force would be permissible to recover property that was stolen the day before. So that's where we are. Uh, and again, I don't have a personal position on this. I, I don't know enough facts uh, to know whether or not he's got a viable self-defense argument. Maybe he does. I've got no reason not to like Sean Kemp or not believe him. Uh, but uh, but I hope he does, uh, because if he doesn't uh, and the prosecution wants to be aggressive here, uh, you know, they have room to maneuver. Uh, I don't think they have probable cause. Uh, I wouldn't bring charges on these facts, uh, but many prosecutors bring charges on much less uh, than we have here. And, you know, I mean, prosecutors, they don't like it when people are exchanging gunfire in gas station parking lots outside a mall. That's bad. So even if they only pursued it to kind of serve as a chilling effect uh, to prevent others from engaging in similar behavior, that's that's not just. I wouldn't pursue a prosecution for that purpose, but many prosecutors do. Uh, certainly the, the Rittenhouse case was much like that. Uh, the Zimmerman case was much like that. 
you know, maybe it was lawful self-defense, but we're going to punish you so bad in the process that it'll discourage other law-abiding people from acting in a similar manner. Um, on the other hand, Sean Kemp is uh, apparently a famous guy in the area. I guess he's saying, and the press has been saying for some time, nothing to do with this event, that he'd like to bring, I guess the Sonics left Washington. He'd like to bring him back to Washington. That's the kind of thing politicians like to see. Uh, you know, cities are treated differently if they're, you know, NFL, NBA level cities. I don't know why, but that's how that kind of thing works politically. Yeah, the McCloskeys were the same, sending a political message, right? A chilling effect message to other lawful gun owners. Uh, that's why they were charged. Um, so, so we'll have to see how the case develops. But I think, uh, uh, let me check. I'll do the, the question check. Let me... The Law of Self-Defense members first. Uh, Law of Self-Defense member James says, question, love these sessions. Thanks. I signed up for a self-defense class, got an invoice, but it does not tell me where to go to join the class on April 15th. Yeah, if you sign up for the Law of Self-Defense advanced class, uh, generally er early in the week, before the Saturday, we send out all the uh, the links and everything you need to everyone who's who's registered. Um, so you'll you'll get everything you need well before the class actually starts uh, to make sure you can connect to the Zoom stuff. We don't distribute that stuff way way ahead of time because you know if you if you send out the Zoom link months before and we do market these classes for months before, then they, they, it tends to leak out to you know non students. Uh, law self-defense member Kyle says, do we know the duration of the encounter in the appeal? Does the justification for force to prevent the theft and the instant of dispossession, uh, it, it becomes a gray area, right? So it's almost like curtilage. We talked about curtilage, uh, yesterday, curtilage, uh, being the area around your home. That's part of the normal day-to-day -day use of the home. And it's treated as if you were in the four walls of your house, but it's generally not rigidly defined. It's a judgment call made on a case-by-case -case basis, whether you were 30 feet away from your front door or 40 feet or 100 feet, or you're still within the curtilage of your home. Um, it, it involves a lot of subjective factors. Is your yard fenced in, for example? Do you have a gate at the end of your driveway? That would be positive uh, in terms of curtilage uh, interpretation. Uh, well, much the same as, you know, when, when are you in fresh pursuit? It's uh, it becomes a judgment call on a case by case basis. This was a pretty close one, I would suggest. Um, he th here the defendant believed he saw the thief within line of sight immediately after she taken the phone out of his car, and the court here decided that was too late to qualify as fresh pursuit. I mean, the thief only made it a few blocks, and that was that was enough to not qualify as fresh pursuit. So it's, it's just going to be judged on a, a case by case basis. Um, so that was the member question. I do want to get to uh, touch once more on some, you know, kind of the practical reality aspects of this before, before we sign off. Let's see. Okay. And uh, no super chats, which is fine. Did we get the likes up? We did. Thank you very much, folks. I really appreciate that. So the, the practical aspects of this, folks, even if 
Sean Kemp would have had a legal privilege to use even deadly force to recover his iPhone. I don't tell people what to do. And if he had a legal privilege to use deadly force to recover his iPhone, I mean, I'd be happy to defend him on the legal merits of that decision. But is it smart to get into a gunfight over an iPhone? Is that what we want to die over? Died over an iPhone? That's your epitaph? I mean, there are things worth dying over, for sure. Uh, and each of us may have a different list of things that we would deem it a good death to have died over whatever, X, Y, Z. Uh, I don't tell people what to put on their list. That's up to you. Um, I can only tell you the legal implications of your list, if you care to share it. Um, but uh, recovering my iPhone is not on the, my list of things I'm willing to die for. But that's the risk you're incurring, right? I, I always urge people, don't, don't be getting into fights you don't need to be getting into. Do you need to get into a fight over an iPhone? Because the moment you're in that fight, you incur, you're incurring two risks. You were not incurring a moment before. One is the risk of death, right? There's no magic pixie dust in this uh, Sean Kemp affair that prevented him from catching around through the head if those other people were shooting at him, through the heart, the aorta, and he would have been dead. Over what? An iPhone? I mean, I expect the guy can afford to buy another iPhone. Or he might have killed somebody. And he killed somebody over what? Over an iPhone? And even if you don't have a moral issue with that, and I understand many people wouldn't, think of all the legal risk you just incurred. Now you've opened yourself up to a manslaughter or murder conviction, potentially spending the rest of your life in prison if things don't go your way. And folks, you could have been justified and still get convicted. It happens. So now you're spending the rest of your life in a cage, unjustly convicted perhaps, but still spending the rest of your life in a cage over what? An iPhone? There are things I'd be willing to go to prison for for the rest of my life, but an iPhone is not one of them. So again, I don't tell people what to do. So I'm not suggesting you do uh, anything in particular other than be informed and you know make informed decisions about where you draw the line and being prepared to get into a fight, especially a deadly force fight where you might die or have to kill somebody. But I do urge you to think about these questions today. Think about them now. Because you don't have time to think about it in the fight. You need, you need to know your list ahead of time so you can make quick, efficient, disciplined, decisive use of force decisions in the moment. This I'm willing to die over. And then you fight 150%. This I'm not. And then you're not fighting at all. I would suggest that's the appropriate paradigm. By the way, we talk about all this in much more detail, uh, as you might imagine, uh, in our upcoming Law of Self-Defense Advanced course taking place on Saturday, April 15th, the only one of these scheduled for all of 2023, a full-day course of instruction taught live by me, streamed to your computer. Uh, plenty of opportunity for Q&A over the course of the day. In one day, you learn how to be hard to convict, how to be an unattractive target for prosecution. And 
you learn how to think through some of these practical realities of use of force events. By the way, even if you're fully informed on all this, which unless you've taken the class before, you probably aren't, uh, maybe you have a loved one. Maybe you have a, a, a husband or a dad or a son. Um, maybe they're a little hot-headed. Maybe they haven't thought some of these things through. Maybe it would be good for them to participate in the class. You can You can buy the class for them. You can register, just put their name in the registration, put their email in the registration um, and get them fully informed in one day, one day, how to be hard to convict, how to be an unattractive target for prosecution if they're ever compelled to use force against uh, in defense of themselves, their family, their property, and and how to know when not to fight, which is, is, is that as important as knowing when to fight? I, I would suggest it probably is. So learn all of that one day, Saturday, April 15th, the only law self-defense advanced class scheduled for 2023. Learn more, register. And if you register this month, the month of March, you get 10% off your registration at lawofselfdefense.com slash advanced. And yes, we have a Q&A. The last part of the class is Q&A. There have been classes where there were so many questions. It literally took as many hours as the course itself to answer all the questions. So I, I wasn't able to answer all the questions the same day as the class. I just, I lost my voice ultimately. But what I did do is over the next couple of days, I answered those additional hours of questions uh, on a live stream and, and made that available to, uh, to all the students. So every question was ultimately answered. It's just, it was literally hours uh, of questions. I did do it all, but just not in that one day. All right, folks, I think, that is all I have for everybody today. I think so. Let me take one more look to see if there's member questions. Uh, let's see. Uh, Law self defense member Kyle says, comment, I can't think of any property I choose to defend even in Texas. If I thought a vehicle may have a weapon left in it, we're very good at not leaving them. I might use it to prevent the weapon from getting out there. Um, yeah, that's a tough judgment call, right? You hate the idea of anybody escaping with one of your own guns, almost certainly to use it to bad effect on some innocent person. Um, it's why I don't tell people what to do. Just think it through. Make the decision now. Um, and of course, in most states, it wouldn't matter. Right. I mean, if, like if, if, if the person stealing your car with the gun in it, they don't know there's a gun in it yet. Right. They're not threatening you with the gun. It's in the glove box or whatever. It'll be discovered at a later time, but they're not using the gun to threaten you or anybody else. It's a straight up defensive property scenario. Uh, no state but Texas would have any provision for the use of deadly force to prevent the theft of the gun in that kind of scenario. Of course, if they're wielding the gun, then it's a defensive person's scenario. It's not defensive property at all. All right. All right. I think that's all I have for everybody today. So I will remind all of you, if you carry a gun, if you have a gun, uh, so you're hard to kill. So your family is hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun. So my family, myself are hard to kill. Then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law. So you're hard to convict until next time, hopefully tomorrow. I remain attorney Andrew Branker for law of self-defense. Stay safe.